Let's pray as we approach the Word of God together. Dear God, help us to hear from you this morning, to see what you have for us in Scripture, and to respond with quick obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if is a big word. I know only two letters in the English language, but huge impact with regard to the word if. Give you some examples before we move into some uh, spiritual things. I'll just start with everyday stuff. So my wife and I have kids and grandkids uh, north of Seattle. It only takes us an hour and a half to drive up and see our kids if there is no traffic. There is always traffic. Washington summer is a great place in the world to be. Probably, I think, one of the greatest places in the world to be is in Washington during the summer. My son got married outdoors in, in Washington summer, which you would think, okay, that, that, that's the best. But it's only the great, a great time to have a wedding outdoors in the state of Washington in the summer if it doesn't rain. Yeah, 80 degrees and dry the day before the wedding, 80 degrees and dry the day after the wedding. But on the day of the wedding, a newscaster from Como said, oh, we're going to have a fire hose of rain today. And yeah, and we did. Yeah, we got soaked. Uh, let's see. One more. Okay, sports fans, here we go. Um, this year, the Mariners are going to win the World Series. If... <laughs> If a whole lot of players don't get hurt, if Jared Kelenek has a good year, if the Astros are bad, and for those of us who've waited 19 or 20 years for this to happen, if a few teams drop out of the league, hey, the, the Mariners are in. We're, we're just in the World Series. Okay, well, sometimes if um, can be used to posit the significance of something by saying the opposite or, you know, saying, putting it in, in the terms of a negative so let me give it to you this way. If Jesus Christ were not raised from the dead, we would have no church, we would have no Easter, we would have no Savior. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, that changes everything. Interesting that Jesus gave us uh, information way ahead of his crucifixion and resurrection. First and foremost, so his followers would be anticipating crucifixion and resurrection, but also so we would know that it's not an accident. Not a series of bad events spiraling out of control, and suddenly, lo and behold, Jesus ended up on a cross. He wanted us to know that this was an intentional and the cross of Jesus Christ, add to that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, literally changes everything. So the question that I have that I'm going to set before you this morning is simply this. How do you respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Knowing that this was something he embraced and he pursued. It wasn't like he was a, a good guy who got in the mix of some bad people and the wrong thing happened at the wrong time. And lo and behold, he just ended up crucified. No, he embraced, he wanted the cross to happen because he knew resurrection was beyond, was beyond the cross. So the most important event of human history being the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how have you responded to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? 
What I hope to show you this morning as we travel through some pages in the Gospel of John is to show you this, that God, God's love for you is demonstrated in both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that means his love is a statement. It is locked in. It cannot be changed. You cannot make God love you less because of what you do say or think. He just simply loves you. We're going to see that from the Gospel of John. So here we are. I'm in John chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading by, uh, uh, I'm going to start reading a, a verse that I, I, I think everybody in the room might have heard of this, might, might even be able to quote it to some, some degree. John 3.16, we even see guys at ball games with banners referencing John 3.16. But I'll have several things to point out about this verse and some other portions of the Gospel of John that we'll look at later this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Several things I have for you this morning. The first one is the, the context of this promise. It is a promise. God gave the, world, gave the Son to the world. Whoever believes, there is the promise, whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Okay, so what's the context of this promise? We like to do Bible study around here where we, we turn some pages and look at um, what's going on and what was written down. The literary context is what we call it. What was written down just prior to the, the statement that we're looking at or maybe what occurs just after. So there is, there is some context here. And I, and I point this out because I think a lot of times... Uh, Something like John 3.16 is, is sort of famous, and that, that, that phrase becomes a bumper sticker, believe in Jesus, you have eternal life, or it's a banner at a ball game or something like that. Not even realizing that it's built upon a foundation, that there is a context for this. There are layers of understanding, and we can go deeper with John 3.16, perhaps even deeper than you've ever been before in, in terms of your understanding of what this great promise is about. So let's back up. Uh, Reading chapter uh, 3 still, but verses 14 and 15. Let's start with that. And this is still Jesus talking. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus is appealing to Moses. That's Old Testament. Specifically, there's an occasion where in the book of Numbers... Chapter 21, something happens, and Jesus references that. There was a situation where uh, God's people were in the wilderness, and there were some venomous snakes. They were being bitten. Moses, led by God, um, offered a solution. He, he hoisted a bronze serpent up on his, sta on his uh, stake. If they look at this and believe in God that he could actually intervene on their behalf, they would uh, not die. They would not perish. So this is sort of a, an event that we call it a type of uh, the crucifixion, a type of Christ. I could go on and on about that. Never mind. I want you to hear that is written in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. This is written down 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is doing is he gives this promise Knowing that crucifixion and resurrection are embedded in this promise, he goes way back to Old Testament writing, 1,400 years prior to him. What Jesus is telling us is that there's this redemptive thread that runs throughout Scripture. 
from the Old Testament all the way through the life of Jesus Christ, all the way to the end of the New Testament, there is a redemptive thread that speaks of how God is going to save people. Can't be missed. So when Jesus speaks John 3.16, he's not making up new information. He's explaining some of what is already written down in Scripture. That if you look with faith to God, you will not perish. There is a redemptive thread that we ought to be able to find more than a sprinkle of verses here and there. And in fact, we do. That phrase, the Son of Man lifted up, refers to crucifixion. So when Jesus gave this promise for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, he wasn't just thinking about Christmas and being born in Bethlehem. He was thinking about what we call Good Friday, the cross that he would embrace. He was thinking about Easter Sunday, the resurrection that would occur in his life. Jesus knows this promise is contingent upon him living a perfect life, qualifying to be Savior, and then dying on a cross for our sin, God raising him from the dead. Jesus knows all of that, and that is embedded in the promise of John 3.16. So Jesus ties our belief in him to his belief in God's plan of salvation. All of this is very helpful for several reasons. We can know with certainty that this is God's plan for the world, for Jesus, and for you and me. Given that this plan was spoken by Jesus, well, clearly delineated by Jesus two years before his birth, uh, excuse me, two years before his death on the cross, Two years, that's a lot of time to run. He had time to hide. He had time to do something else, go somewhere else, make sure that this didn't happen. And if anything, as you read the Gospels, it looks like Jesus pursued this plan. In fact, when I read, read through the trials of Jesus Christ, I get the impression that Jesus made it happen. And in fact, if Jesus didn't make it happen, it wasn't going to happen. That's how much he wanted the cross to happen. Because he knows right on the other side of that is crucifixion okay so that's the context of God's great promise here now the object of God's love embedded in this promise so listen for the object for God so loved what is it the world for God so loved the world that's the object of God's love the object is these people who comprise who are under this term of of, of the world we tend to think of the world as anybody who's ever lived Anybody who's alive when this promise was given, anybody who's alive right now, anybody who ever will live, it's just anybody, everybody and anybody comprises the world. Well, one of the ways we do Bible study around here is to look at the pages of Scripture and ask ourselves, is there any other location where the author uses that particular word in that particular book or letter that he's writing? So how does John use the word world? Since that's the object and we want to understand it better, what does John mean when he says, God so loved the world? Is it just a great big glob of, glob of people who are sort of nameless and faceless and he didn't really know them? Is that what he means? Is it, is it just everybody, every single person who's ever lived, ever will live? What did John mean? And it turns out he, he has used the word world quite a bit. And we can be very clear what he meant and, and uh, helps, helps us to understand the depth 
of God's love. So I'm going to turn some pages. John chapter 1, verse 10. Just backing up to the very beginning of John's gospel. When he's introducing Jesus Christ, he said some fascinating things about Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Okay, so that's not a reference to the quantity of people. That's actually a description of the quality of their connection to Jesus Christ. There are people in this glob that we call world who don't recognize Jesus, don't, don't receive him. Now, let's see if that's a pattern. We're going to turn some more pages to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 7. John chapter 7, verse 7. Wow. Okay, it says this. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. Now, that's a very strong indictment. Jesus is saying that the people who comprise the, the, the term the world hate him, and they want to do what is evil. Uh, John chapter 14, there's a few more. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Now, the occasion of this is on the uh, night that Jesus was betrayed. He had a nice long conversation with his uh, disciples, and we have that recorded for us in John chapter 13 through 17. So this is the last conversation of freedom that, or with freedom that he has. I'm going to pick it up in the, uh, sort of the middle of a thought, but let, let's just grab it with verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you, the Spirit of truth. So Jesus is promising he's, he will, uh, the Holy Spirit will be sent. Jesus is leaving them, and in his place the Holy Spirit will be sent. And then let's keep reading with verse 17. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. So there's an, another thing that I, we would need to place in the category of a negative. The, 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 the collection of people who comprise the term the world, now they, they don't recognize or really want much to do with the Holy Spirit sent by God. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 18. John chapter 15, verse 18. This one's very simple, very direct. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. So there again, we have the world being in a natural disposition of hatred toward God. John chapter 16, this last one, John chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Okay, that's crucifixion, resurrection. Verse 20, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. So this, this collection of people that comprise the term the world now are, are being described by Jesus as celebrating, getting excited about, glad to see that Jesus is defeated on the cross where he died. Wow, that summation of, of the world uh, based just on the gospel of John is intense. But hear this, that's the group of people that God loved. People who were against him, people who were opposed to him, 
people who hated him, people who wanted to see and celebrated his defeat. God loved them. And the proof of God's love is that he sent his son to them that they might receive life. Okay, so let's put this in a contrast. And I don't intentionally mean for this to sting, but perhaps it will. Let's just draw a contrast. What's it like to be you when you encounter people who hate you? What's it like to watch you when you are in a situation where you have to come into a, the proximity of somebody that you know is against you and wants to see your downfall? What's that like to look at you during those times? God so loved the world, loved the world, that he gave his most precious possession. When I was a father of a new, when I was a new father, had, had my first child, first baby, out in public somewhere, somebody sees me, they recognize me from church or somewhere, feel like they know me, come up to me and extend their hands. They, they want my baby. They want to hold my baby. And I'm thinking, uh, this is my most precious possession in the world. I don't think I know you. Uh, he's got a burp, sorry. You know, I, I'm leaving. You're, you're not getting my kid. God so loved those who were antagonistic to him that he demonstrated his love by sending his only son. You do with him what you will. That is staggering. The depth of God's love. Particularly compared to people love and the way we love other people sometimes. God loved the world with a selfless love and a redemptive love. And God's love is amazing, not because the world is so big, but because at times the world is so bad. Wow. And you are included in the term world. So please don't ever think, I don't know if God could love me because of what I said, did, or thought. God has already demonstrated his love for you in that he sent his son, his, son, his only son, his precious son, to live here for a season so that you could, ally, you could have life with him eternal. Okay, so what we've looked at is the context of, of this great promise from God, and we've seen that it's at least 1,400 years old in history. And other scriptures I could show you, it, it goes back to eternity past. It's always been the plan of God. Resurrection is not plan B to try to fix something that went wrong. That was always the plan. Crucifixion, resurrection, going to happen. The object of God's love is the world, and that includes people who hate God and are opposed to him. And there's also the object of saving faith. So we understand there's a, there's a belief in here that Jesus says, I'm turning my pages back to John 3.16, that Jesus refers to believe in him or have faith in him. So th there is an object. Just, just like the, um, the love of God has an object, our, our faith, our belief has an object. This is different than believe anything you want because something very specific is named that's attached to the belief. And what is named that's attached to the belief is not the amount of faith that you have. It's not the sincerity of faith that you have. It's not what that faith does to you as in it makes you a better person. It's the object of faith that you have. 
the object of your belief, if you're interested in life eternal, life abundant, is going to need to be the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God, there's only one God, and he, has, he only has one son. And that's the provision that's in this promise. Let's read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Again, Jesus did not speak of the sincerity of it. Boy, if ever there was a time for Jesus to kind of straighten out misunderstandings that probably may have occurred at that time, certainly misunderstandings that would come, come into pass through the corridor of time, if ever there was a time for Jesus to explain this is how it is, it would have been this time. And, and yet we don't see Jesus saying, you know, the, the quality of your belief is what matters most. If you, if you have enough belief, if you have enough faith, Jesus does not say anything anywhere near, you can believe anything you want as long as you're sincere and God will let you in. Jesus actually points to himself, believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And since we know that the provision of eternal life is crucifixion, resurrection, I, I think this is embedded in the promise. So in other words, if Jesus does not go to the cross and rise from the dead, he is a false prophet, prophet and we don't have a savior. There are um, two outcomes that are mentioned here that are sometimes hard to hear. Certainly were hard to hear when I was first getting to know this verse. So, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, what's going to happen now are two outcomes. Bear with me on this. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. Boy, those are about as opposite as opposite can be. And there's no middle ground in there that Jesus is saying, well, it could be door number one or two or three or 17 or 24. He's saying there's two outcomes. Believe has eternal life, reject has perish eternal separation from God. In my early days of Christianity and, and learning the Bible and trying to discover what is Christianity about, I just railed against this. Sure, like the part that God loved the people, like the part that God sent the Son, like the part about whoever believes, but that, that sounds inclusive, that, that includes me, did not like this part about the outcomes, eternal life and perish. How can this be? How can Jesus say this? I think it's easier to understand if we take a step back and, and broaden our, our look just a bit. Um, you can understand Christianity by the word done. And you could summarize all other major religions with the word do. So two words, done and do. And what Jesus is saying, and, and I'll draw this out more with some other scripture in a moment, but what Jesus is saying is, and whoever believes in him, knowing the work of crucifixion and resurrection were going to occur, what Jesus is saying is, trust God for the work that he has done, or will do at that particular time, for the, the work that he has done in the person of Jesus Christ. All other major world religions have a, a system of things that you need to do in order to earn God's favor. Jesus is saying it is all done for you. That's why you believe and you trust in him. 
Now, let's see that play out because I think I just said a lot there, and it sure be helpful if there's some, some statements in Scripture that, that support that. So turn some pages, and I'm going to go to John chapter 6. And I'll set this up for you this way so you can understand the context of a question that was asked of Jesus and the answer that he gives. In John chapter 6, there's the, a feeding of a whole group of people, and sometimes we refer to that as feeding the 5,000. But then you read in verse 10, and it says that the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Well, it looks like that 5,000 could be a reference to the men. A good number of those men are going to be married, and they're going to have kids. So how many was there? It could be 10 grand. Thousands. Let's just say there's thousands. So Jesus has fed, he's, he's created a situation where bread is available to thousands of people and a good number of those people are are so relieved and so in, intrigued wow we have bread to eat let's follow this guy that they work hard they set aside everything that they do to go follow Jesus and they have to ask around in various cities and finally they find out he's across the lake so they garner garner um, rowboats and they they row across the, the sea of Galilee they find Jesus Christ and Jesus is going to say something to them about their great effort to find him for food, find him for the next meal. And Jesus is going to draw yet another contrast and say, you know, there's something better than this. Watch this. John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that meaning Jesus, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then the crowd asks, or maybe this is just someone in the crowd, but it comes across as then they asked him, and this is a great question, asked of the, of the best person you could possibly ask this type of question. Verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires. Boy, that is so clear and so straightforward and so simple. Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus just gave us a simple answer? Well, in fact, he did. Verse 29. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, to believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Believe all of him and what he represents. Crucifixion, resurrection is going to happen. Believe in him because he has done the work for you. What I want to suggest to you, based on scripture, is that there's not anything you can do to access eternal life because God has already done it all for you. Believe in the one that God has sent. And this is more than believe in Jesus being born in Bethlehem on what we call Christmas Day. Jesus kept the law for you. 613 commands in the Old Testament, Jesus kept them all, kept them all for you. Jesus lived a perfect life for you because you could not. And so Jesus did that for you, thereby qualifying to be your Savior. Jesus went to the cross to become the substitutionary sacrifice that the Old Testament speaks about. Jesus was raised for the dead and is now our risen Lord Savior who embraces all who come to him.
Now, lest you think that dying on the cross is merely a great example of sacrificial love, please understand, while Jesus was on the cross, your sin was placed on him. We sang that earlier in that Power of the Cross song. So that was song number three that we did today. While Jesus was on the cross, your sin was credited to him. It's as if he had an account, and someone wrote in his account, your sin. And he took that with him to the cross. And then he absorbed God's wrath, God's judgment for that sin. So your sin has already been judged in Christ. It's already been paid for in Christ. We know Jesus absorbed the uh, consequences of sin, meaning separation, because while he's on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the very first time in his life, Jesus stepped into the black hole of sin and he was alone. In contrast to that, when you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation, God credits to you the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. It's not a delay. There's not 10 years of working it off and proving that you're a Christian. You probably didn't know about it when it happened. At the moment of salvation, when you come to Christ, what God gifts you with is the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what God sees when he looks at you today, if you're a Christian. That's what Jesus means when he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus has done the work for you. He's kept the law where you could not. And he's endured the judgment of your sin so that you don't have to. Now, there are some who've heard this, and I, I receive this from time to time, some pushback, saying, well, it, it can't be that simple. It can't be that easy. It sounds like you can just believe in Jesus and get your ticket to heaven and then live in any way that you want to live and do anything you want to do and say anything you want to say and be kind of a bad person, but all the while you're going to heaven because you said you believe. That's not it at all. Let's go to John chapter 14. One more that I have for you, one more. John chapter 14, verse 21, and I'm going to suggest ahead of time before we even read this that it's a mistake to think that once you become a Christian, it doesn't matter what you think or believe or say or do because now you belong to Jesus. Let's look at uh, chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So whoever has the command, and we know that there's about 50 commands of Christ written down in, in the Gospels. We also know there's a thousand commands written by the leaders of the church that made their way into Scripture. These are the leaders of the church who, who were with Jesus and knew him and heard him taught and were witnesses of the, of the resurrection. And their response to the, the teachings of Jesus Christ, even John 3.16, their response to hearing things like that is to give directives, commands to the church. And we have about a thousand of those. I don't think this could be any more clear. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. A Christian embraces the commands of Christ because he wants to please and honor the Savior who loves him. Now, in the Gospels, people who um, 
We're attached to Jesus in close relationship with him. We're called followers of Jesus Christ. We don't see that term very much in the book of Acts and falling forward into the early church. What we see is that they were called disciples of Jesus Christ. Now here's interesting, because originally they were, they were trying to call themselves followers of Jesus or followers of the way. But this happened in the book of Acts. It's chapter 11, if you want to look it up. Uh, there was a church in Antioch, which is in Syria. So not even in Israel. Really not that close to Jerusalem. You'd have to go several hours to get up to Syria and, and then find Antioch. And there's a church in Antioch, which is a great, thriving, growing church in the book of Acts. And they're putting on display what it looks like to be followers of Jesus Christ. And those who are outside the church looking at these Christians, they're not even Christians. They're just watching the Christians in Antioch. They say to themselves, you folks... We're going to call you Christians because you follow Christ. In the ancient world, it was common to attach the name of of who you were following to yourself. If you were a, a Herodian, that meant you followed Herod. And so they, they noticed that these, these people who were different than, than the folks around them, yet they all kind of did the same thing together. Well, they followed Jesus Christ. Let's just call them Christian. Because they belong to Jesus. Let me transition to an illustration to, uh, that's contemporary. And I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I am a happily married man, 37 and a half years. I love my wife, Julie, and I want to serve her and build her up and encourage her and treat her well. I would be in a world of hurt if you knew me and if you knew Julie and you didn't know we were married. If you were to come to me sometime and we were having a conversation and I were to point out Julie, hey, that's my wife. And you were to say, I didn't even know you were married, let alone to her. How'd that happen? When did it happen? How long have you been married? That would be awful. See, see I, I, don't, I don't publicly display love for my wife so that you can see it. I just put my life on display in terms of I love my wife and some of that spills out into public knowledge. I can't imagine someone saying, in fact, I'd be confused if you tell me that you love Jesus Christ, but you don't follow Jesus Christ. I don't know what you mean when you say you love Jesus Christ and ignore the commands of Christ. I don't, I don't know how to process that. Just like I would think you don't know what I mean if I say I love my wife, Julie, and she lives in Lacey and I live in Olympia. I don't don't think you have any reason to to trust that I actually am married to her at that point. That's what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So Christianity is not a matter of receiving a ticket to heaven and then sticking it in your wallet until that day that you think you finally need it. Becoming a Christian is the starting point of a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ that is deep and real and life-changing. So what I've done for you is I've tried to describe Christianity with really just two words I'm using here. First word is salvation. Come to Christ to begin the relationship with Jesus Christ. Get saved from the perils of going out into eternity on your own and trying to explain to God how it is that you were good enough and then absorbing his wrath for your sin salvation 
But the second word is sanctification. And that's that process of, of growing more and more like the person of Jesus Christ. Right now on God's to-do list, if you've been a Christian one day or maybe even 100 years, if that were possible somehow in this room, no matter how long you've been a Christian, on God's to-do list today is to build the character of his son in your heart so that you would live like Jesus and talk like Jesus and act like Jesus, thereby looking like someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. And maybe somebody would call you Christian as a result of that. Let's take a look at how the uh, early church, well, one early church leader, I'm just going to stay in one book. I'm going to flip some pages to the uh, book of Philippians. Just write the Bible, I'm not making this stuff up. And how an early church leader um, looked at the, the um, teachings of Jesus Christ and, you know, obviously formed and prayed and spent time talking to God in prayer and re reading the Old Testament scripture as well. But he's trying to teach the church in Philippi what it looks like for them to be followers of Jesus Christ. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So that's the day either of your home going, you die and go home to be with the Lord, or Jesus Christ returns. Until that day, there's space between now and then, God is at work in your life building the character of his son, Jesus Christ, into you. Boy, that sounds very different than you can believe anything you want, you can live any way you want. Let's uh, take another one, verse 27 of chapter 1. So Paul is talking about the fact that he might be able to come to them, he might not. He might die because he's a prisoner of the Lord, and he doesn't know if they're going to take his life in prison. This is not the, the imprisonment that leads to his death. There's, a, there's one that happens after this. So he, he does get out of this prison, but he doesn't know it at the time. Maybe I'll live, maybe not. And he says this, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So if you were to have a T-shirt on you that says, Christian, or if you were to have a bumper sticker that says, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I embrace the gospel. Paul says, live your life in such a way that you would not at all be embarrassed if somebody knew you were a Christian. Live your life worthy of the gospel. That's way different than get your ticket to heaven and live any way you want to live. Here's another one, chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you. We usually think of God working around us and Evidence of that is we often pray when we hit a hard time. We want God to fix our situation, our circumstances. But did you know God's working in you? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It helps me to remember to will and to act. He, God gives me both the desire and the ability. I need to follow him because I don't have that on my own. He gives me both the, the desire and the ability to follow him. Quite frankly, gang, I don't trust me often enough where I, I find myself on my knees in the morning praying, God, help me to think like Jesus and to feel like Jesus. Because I know I'm going to get hit with some circumstances or some people. I will not have time to withdraw and pray. It's going to have to be a knee-jerk response that comes out of me. That needs to be God's work in me in order for me to be pleasing to God in that way. One more, chapter 3, verse 12. 
Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect or mature, complete in Christ, but I press on, effort, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, using those phrases, take hold, Jesus did it first. Jesus took hold of the Apostle Paul. Jesus took hold of a guy who was Saul the Pharisee and, and de, dis, uh, dismantled the Pharisee and built the Apostle. Jesus took hold of Paul, but by golly, Paul needs to take hold of Jesus as well. I take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. That is a far cry from get your ticket to heaven and live any way you want. Okay, let's think about that verse that we started with, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you realize that God is making you an offer? And I'm asking, I'm probing, what have you done to that offer? Have you responded? You know you can. There's a sense in which we respond every day by living the life that God has for us. We pursue, we take hold, we try. There's also a sense in which um, if you're new to this, or perhaps it's been a long time, I mean like a long time, maybe you need to trust God that it's his work which is more important for your salvation than your own work. I want to start off by praying for everybody in this room and then there will be a moment of time when I, I speak and I pray directly for you folks who need to come to Christ today, not for a ticket into heaven, but for a relationship that is deep, real, and will be life-changing. Let's pray together. Our God, we come humbly this morning because your word has humbled us. First of all, we had no idea that you loved people that much. Staggering to think that you loved people, and you still do. You love people who are against you, opposed to you, want nothing to do with you, and you love them, love them still. That is just amazing. We're also humbled to think in terms that uh, we, we couldn't live that perfect law. We, we couldn't keep your standard. We had to have someone else do it for us. We're thrilled that someone did. Jesus, we call him Savior, Lord, King. We love that, love that. We want to be more like you. Teach us how and grant us the ability we need to be followers of Jesus Christ. My friends, if it's your need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, I would just simply ask that you, you let my prayer be, become your prayer. I hope I can pray the way your heart indicates. Dear God, I understand now what it is that you have for me. And I thank you that you sent Jesus to be here, born here, and to live that perfect life that I could not live. And then to, to die on a cross where he absorbed the judgment that I just simply cannot absorb. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And I'm placing my trust in him now that he has done everything that needs to be done and I no longer need to do things to work for your approval somehow. I'm receiving the gift of life eternal 
and life abundant now. In the name of Jesus, I pray. God, for everyone in the room, again, I would just simply ask that you'd help us to follow you, to be in your word, to be prayerful, to look for those opportunities. When we, when we get to tell somebody else that we belong to Jesus, help us to tell and to show. In Jesus' name, amen.